everyone, welcome back to another episode of Strip by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. I am your host, Steph Sia, aka Kimchi on stage, which I actually will be on stage once this episode is passed. <laughs> but um, returning to the stage soon, um, I'm also a digital content creator, former sugar baby, and all around person that does a lot of things. But um, yeah, that's that's me in a really small nutshell. <laughs> I don't need to go into detail because we have a much cooler guest, much cooler than me, <laughs> joining me on the show this week. I am very, very, very excited to bring Professor Tamara O'Doherty from Simon Fraser University. She is a criminology professor, which is also my alma mater. I'm really excited to bring her onto the show today. Tamara, are you there? I am here. Thank you for having me. Yay! Thank you so much for coming on to the show. I am so excited that this is going full circle because I am a criminology graduate slash gender studies minor from SFU. So this is so exciting for me. <laughs> no, that's it's so cool to be able to do this for folks, especially the people who are part of our institution. Uh, it's, it's awesome. I've been teaching there probably as long as you were a student there. I don't think our paths <laughs> ever crossed. And it's unfortunate because no. I think you would have had such a great time with some of my classes. And I would have loved to have these conversations with you back then, too. <laughs> I agree. I, I remember, like, there were definitely some hot um, topics or subjects that I was like, wow, there's a class on this. But I could never get into those classes. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> which is, I mean, which is great. I mean, the classes are popular. You, I've read all your great reviews and ratemyprofessor.com. So. Oh, no. No, <laughs> no great things. It's been great. <laughs> I missed out. Oh, I do my best to ignore those things. They're, they're not so good for the ego sometimes. No. <laughs> well, it's really lovely for you to join me on the show today. Thank you again so, so much. Um, the really brief things that I know about you, obviously you're a professor in the School of Criminology at SFU. You specialize in criminal law, human rights, civil liberties, victimization, commercial sex, human trafficking. I am sure I'm missing a whole bunch here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we could go on. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I think I've, I've done uh, four different degrees now, which, which uh, accumulated to 18 years uh, wow. in the university environment as a student. Yeah, it's like a sentence, essentially, you can kind of compare it to. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's, it's been a heck of a journey. And I mean, in all honesty, I'm a total 100% keener and nerd. Uh, so for me, going to school has been actually just a, a huge privilege to be able to do what I get to do. And I don't say that in a cheesy, ooh, privilege kind of way. Yeah. I actually mean it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, again, as you said, you've been in this field for so, so long. What were your origins and motivations to study like, and to take on this type of research? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I never set out to do this. This this was not the career path that I thought I would walk, that's for sure. Oh. Um, I was I was a law student uh, when I first kind of started to get connected with folks in the downtown east side, which for viewers who aren't from this area is, it's it's known as the poorest postal code in Canada. Yes. Um, and it's, it's an area that has been for generations somewhere where people have been pushed and people have been kept. Mm -hmm. uh, who do not fit really well into kind of middle class uh, values. They have, there's poverty issues, intergenerational violence issues, uh, precarious housing, employment, addiction, mental health. Um, it, so it's known as, as this kind of set, this area, this geographic area where you have 
really there's been a lot of active um, pushing of people to these particular to this particular area so that mm-hmm. you know the rest of people can keep their lives free of these what think they're referred to very often as social deviants right uh, we don't like to see it right so yeah. i first started getting aware of of the experiences of folks in the downtown east side mm-hmm. when i was in in law school myself and i found their experiences to be so dramatically different from my own experiences and mm-hmm. to really make me rethink about the role of the law and who bears the brunt of things like criminalization. Um, right. I wanted to be a Crown Prosecutor before oh, this. Oh, my and gosh. So, um, um, when I started to see some of the, the damage that's being done through our institutions, uh, it really made me question whether I wanted to follow that road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when I first got connected with organizations like PACE Society in Vancouver right. yes. uh, that provide services for street-based sex workers. Mm-hmm. And I found that I had, I had learned the wrong things and that even though I was on my second degree, I actually knew pretty much nothing about people's real lived experiences and that I, I, had, a, I had a tremendous um, educational experience of my own right. uh, that I had to go through uh, and relearn uh, or, or unlearn a lot of the damaging stigma and, and stereotypes that I had learned and start to open my mind to what people actually live um, wow. and, and the differences. And this was at a time period when the, it was the height of the missing women. Oh, um, yes. That was huge. Yeah, so there were, there were, there were hundreds of, of missing women at the time and people were literally going missing on almost a nightly basis. Yes. And so I was very cognizant of the terror in the community and, and the violence all around people. Mm-hmm. And one of the saddest things for me was the fact that Nobody there could call police for protection. Right. The police were simply not a protective service for people at all. Right. And and that I found to just be completely opposite from what I had learned, um, and it made me again really question a lot of my experiences, and it made me say, okay, this is this is not how we ought to be doing things. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So that really heavily influenced um, everything I did from that point. Um, I wanted to, actually didn't want to be an academic. (laughs) (laughs) I was was very anti-academics because I thought that they had been partially responsible for a lot of the um, faulty knowledge that some of the laws and some of our our practices were built on. Mm -hmm. And I found that a lot of the way that we did research was really exploitative um, and only served to help academics didn't actually serve to make life better right. for anybody who was who was the subject of their their research so I didn't want to be an academic no but what ended up happening is people you know, in the community so sex workers uh, were the ones who were saying listen you know we actually do need people to produce knowledge mm-hmm. we need it to be done ethically we need to be done where we get to play a role and get, get some benefits from it as well yeah for sure I started doing collaborative research um, with with sex workers, and that's pretty much the only type of research I did for about 15 years. Wow. And and so that's how I started looking at the off-street side of the business to kind of turn the research gaze uh, so that we weren't always focusing on street-entrenched individuals. Right. And and that that led me, of course, to have criminology and a legal background, so Mm -hmm. I was always focusing on the role of the law and how the law can actually make things much more vulnerable and difficult for people, even though we say that we're trying to protect. Right. But that is simply not what ends up happening. Absolutely. And we'll definitely get into a lot of that later in the episode. (laughs) There's a lot to talk about today. So 
what drew you to sex workers specifically? Because if you've ever stepped on the downtown east side, I live down, I mean, I used to live down the street from the downtown east side. There are just so many different types of people that you'll find there. Lots yeah. of different types of characters and people. What what was it that drew you to sex workers? Uh, you know, again, it wasn't anything in particular. It was mm-hmm. more that I felt, I was just so, I think, I think part of it was a very humbling experience of being wrong mm. about everything. <laughs> um, and, and for me, I, I, I like a challenge and I'm always going to try to find out more about something that if I don't know anything about it. And I found that I was just so wrong and I didn't quite understand how you could get through two degrees and, and be so wrong about people's experiences. So I, I knew I had some work to do to, to fix that in myself. Right. And then I also knew that there were a lot of other people in power who needed to know how wrong they were as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then in terms of like, why did it focus specifically on sex work? I think it was because of the degree of stigma that, that women in particular face, but also that gender fluid and, you know, gender non-binary groups of people have to manage throughout this. Yes. Um, I found it really targets women's sexuality and it really um, adds a level of control and state criminalization. And I will always, always fight against that. Wow. Yeah, it's some pretty powerful stuff. Like, it's it's just so hard to, like, even to this day, (laughs) still hearing that people are getting things wrong. You know, because oh, sex work sure has been around forever, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, why hasn't anything changed? Why hasn't our perceptions changed? If, you know, our the world is still moving, but it seems like our perceptions just are so conservative when it comes to that specific line of work. What do you think I, contributes to that? Oh, God, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. But I really yeah. think a lot of it's quite deliberate. Um, mm. I think that we engage in very active construction of uh, certain types of people, types of activities. We do it to moralize. I think we do it to ensure that we have control over people that we think we need to control. And we have always felt we needed to control women and women's sexuality. Yes. I think that we do it because we are fearful. Um, I think a lot of sex workers reject these constraints on who they ought to have sex with and what conditions and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so that's scary to a lot of people in power. They don't, they don't like people who don't follow their own paths. And so I think that the fear is a really big driver. I mm-hmm. think some of it is misplaced concern also. I yeah. do think that a lot of people kind of turn to a really paternalistic protectionism right. um, when we actually know that can cause a lot more harm yes. if you're basically categorizing women as children. Um, that's not a good thing in terms of equality here. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think that there's a few different drivers, but one of the biggest ones is politics. Mm, okay. It's politics. I think a lot of people forget. They think they seem to think that our law is like this wonderfully objective, neutral thing that exists, so that it's not at all. No. It is deeply and inherently political. Yes. And so we have politicians who are the face of laws. And the reality is most of our public is very poorly informed about the sex industry mm-hmm. and instead they're they're acting on these moral kind of ideas about where sex is, should be placed and prioritized in our lives and most people in that subject area would find that you know this is a private thing it right. shouldn't be commercial it shouldn't be public 
which is kind of hilarious when you think about how sex sells. Yes. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> I reject that one entirely. But the politicians <laughs> themselves, of course, only get their jobs if people vote for them. Of course. Right. So if the general public is generally feeling morally conservative, then they're going to continue to advance morally conservative law. Right. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk really soon, actually, about some of the legislation that was placed in Canada, specifically Bill 36, which was put in by the conservative government back in, I think, 2014. So, which is well, still, yes, it was. yes. <laughs> we'll definitely go into more detail with that. I just wanted to poke and prod a little bit more in terms of like going into commercial sex in Canada. What type of role do you think that plays in society? Because as you said, sex is everywhere. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, is it ever? Um, it, you know what? I actually, uh, I probably have a. I, my, my, I'm hoping that your audience is more receptive to this. Okay. Because <laughs> I know a lot of other audiences, this is kind of shocking to say this, but I actually think sex contributes in so many positive ways, mm-hmm. and I think sex workers fill really valuable roles in society. Yes. Um, and I feel quite sad when people don't recognize the value that sex workers bring um, in the work they do. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that that's in large part because I've done research and I've known so many people who work in ways that are empowering for them. Um, So while I started doing this research, looking, you know, from the perspective of people who were street entrenched and really constrained in their choices and control, Mm -hmm. my next research project focused on the other end of the industry. And so I've met so many amazing and remarkable individuals whose, whose work is just such a huge contribution to other people's happiness. Yes. Um, but just even things like, uh, I mean, right now, touch, obviously, with COVID days, <laughs> is, uh, it's a little is different now. not as positively looked at. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, I think sex workers provide touch. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we know from psychological studies that humans do need a certain level of touch. Yes. And we seem to, we, we acknowledge that for children, but we seem to totally let it go for adults. For adults. And I think mm-hmm. that it's, it's really important to do that. But they also offer intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Level of care, you know, to clients. And then for some people, again, look, I've, I've worked with quite a few people who identify as, you know, non-binary or gender fluid or trans. Mm-hmm. And they argue too that they, they provide people with um, almost uh, vicarious experiences of transitioning, um, as well as exploration of sexuality and gender. Uh, I know lots of people who say that the work that they do, you know, is, is the one safe space maybe for you know men who are gay but won't come out and live their lives gay right once a month they get an hour how amazing is that to be able to provide that for that person definitely Um, i love that perspective and i love that you shared that too in such a positive light too because i feel a lot of the conversations we have it's just a lot of frustration it's a lot of anger that we have from being mislabeled or you know (laughs) not seen in the same pedestal as the rest of our non-sex working peers you know so this is such a refreshing view (laughs) well i should i mean i want to be careful not to romanticize things i know for some it's literally just a job you go in you do your job there's nothing romantic about it right but i also i know people who do it from like a a therapy perspective too Mm -hmm. you know they argue that what they offer is sex therapy to people and and i you know i know some guys who provide um, therapy for women who've been victimized, mm-hmm. you know, to learn to accept and love touch again and to feel good about themselves and, and practicing no and finding their boundaries. I mean, again, what is, what's the wrong here? Yeah. 
What yeah. is the immoral? It, it, I don't understand it. That's a great question. And I mean, hopefully we'll, we'll help <laughs> uncover some of the, the <laughs> I guess, misconceptions that society has drawn upon us. So and this is why you're on the show to help us, you know, <laughs> help, yeah. help a lot of the civilians, civilian listeners that are on the show, at least, you know, try to open their mind a bit more as well. So. Well, and, and I think um, when we ask ourselves, but what is the commercial sex or who is involved in the commercial sex industry too, mm-hmm. I think we have to always remind ourselves of just how huge this industry really is. Yeah. I think a lot of people have a really narrow focus of what they see on TV yes. um, or the cases of you know people who, who are missing or, or victimized. Um, that is a, a segment, yes, but the industry itself covers so many different types of activities and so many different individuals. I mean, in the research that I've done, and when I look across 12 different projects internationally, the average age of people who go into the sex industry is actually in their later 30s. Oh, really? Yes, and people are usually kind of surprised hearing that it's like even in their 30s at all. Some projects are like 29, other projects are 34, 35. Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke with, I mean, one man I'll never forget. (laughs) Uh, He was 64. Wow. You know, and he's still working in the industry. I mean, he said he had to be chemically supplemented sometimes to do some of the work that he had to do. But uh, still, he was, you know, 64 years old and still working. That's incredible. um, yeah, we don't, We again, we think of this as something that you age out of at 25. No, right. certainly some industries are more focused towards younger. Mm-hmm. I think dancing in particular is yes. one um, where there's definitely more of a resistance to older. But sure. in, in terms of working as an independent worker, it's predominantly people who are at least over the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Like, do you think that's more because, okay, we, maybe we have more experience, maybe there's more wisdom there, or maybe it's because it's, it's something that's intentional. We, you know, we have done the research. We've feel more comfortable that way. Like, wh- why do you think it is older yeah. rather than younger? I think all of the above. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think, and again, I'm talking about a particular type of sex work too, right? So the yes. independents who have, kind of have their own businesses. Yes. Um, I think very often people who are, are you know, 30-ish and over 30 or you know 40s 50s we are very much people who are in control of our lives and have made choices in what we do um and very as you said with intention Mm -hmm. but i think people have also had a lot of different job experiences by then and you have an idea of what works for you and what doesn't work for you and i think for a lot of people they don't want to work in these other jobs where they feel exploited essentially by large corporations or they feel that they're part of this run-of-the-mill nine-to-five yes. have to go into the work all the time work for somebody else somebody else makes money you know I think for a lot of, of sex workers it's an entrepreneurial yeah. thing that uses a lot of skills including business acumen absolutely um, I think that's a very different experience than the people who are in their early 20s who are working for you know maybe agencies mm-hmm. I think that's more of a I'm here to do my job and get out um, yeah. kind of a thing but right. uh, the, the other folks who do this, as you said, very intentionally in an, an entrepreneurial way, they should, they ought to be able to take very good pride in the work that they do. And it's so unfortunate that they don't get to do that. No, absolutely. And you brought some really great points there too, because I am definitely within that bucket. Like I'm turning 32 and I, I feel well, way more con- still in young. control. <laughs> still young, still young. But I've come to realization that, okay, I'm not sure if nine to five is for me. Um, I've definitely been in work environments where I feel like I've been treated so badly and the environment's so toxic that I look at my employment when I'm dancing or when I'm doing my OnlyFans and online sex work and those are I mean I 
can't say much about dancing, but on, my online work is definitely on my own terms. Yes. Which is what I love. And it's flexible. I feel safe doing it as well. And I'm not, you know, working for the man. <laughs> and, and that's, like honestly, that. I, I hear that over and over again from people and how important that piece is. But it's also the fact that I think there are a lot of people who enjoy it. Oh, yeah. They enjoy their work. And, and that is scary to the state and to the whole patriarchal idea of, of what people ought to do too, right? Yes. Um, that you can <laughs> actually find this kind of work enjoyable. It's, yes. I feel like a lot of the times, and I'm glad that you're putting the emphasis on, you know, we choose to do this. Like, this is something that we really like to do and take pleasure in. Um, a lot of the times, too, going back to those really negative stereotypes, they're like, oh, people are being forced into this line of work, or, you know, this person needs saving. And oh. all of those things that we're just so tired of hearing. <laughs> it's just really old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's just actually so condescending to, yeah. um, you know, and I know that it's it's probably easier for us to think about, you know, trying to save somebody if you think they're 16. Mm-hmm. But if you're right. talking to an adult woman who is 32 years old, who's got a degree behind her, who's tried out several different jobs, I'm sorry, why can't she make a yeah. choice on her own? Yeah, right? It's yeah. just, <laughs> it's very, very frustrating. But um, but ugh. I think the other thing people don't always realize, too, is how many sex workers are really well-educated. Mm-hmm. That's another um, part, too. Absolutely. I, I mean, again, when you're looking at the off-street side of the business and you're looking at all these different forms of sex work, one of the key things that you'll see across is that it, the, the level of education is so high. Mm-hmm. These are folks who generally have at least one degree, often have master's degrees, several degrees, post-bacs, uh, wow. PhDs, law degrees. Uh, they have they have everything under the sun. And so, again, to question your choices, yeah. it, it, is, it, is, it is so ill-informed. Right. And as you said, super condescending as well. Very, yeah, very. <laughs> um, I also wanted to shift the focus, um, I guess, in the ne- next bucket of <laughs> information that I would love to get your opinion on. We have had a lot of discussions on the podcast in regards to Bill 36, which is the Protection of Communities and Exploitations Persons Act. And there's just been a lot of confusing jargon, I think. Has, I'm trying to make. I'm just trying to be really polite about it. Yeah, no, it's it's it, the the legislation is is quite terribly written. Yeah, um, it's part been, of that. Was, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, as I say, part of it is is people trying to bring things in line with charter requirements while still meeting the conservative government's goals, which is really difficult to do because this is not yeah. legislation that's likely to pass constitutional no. challenges. In fact, it's already been declared unconstitutional in Canada. Really? Yeah. Oh, what? I know. Yeah, there's there have been a couple of cases that have already gone through where the challenges have have been have been successful. Oh and wow. The problem is they're lower court decisions, which means they mm. don't actually apply beyond the individuals involved in the case. And oh. when the crown doesn't appeal it to the next level, then it never gets discussed at the next level. Right. So, oh, that's so they won their cases, but they didn't win anything for anyone else. No. That's really frustrating. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the way the law works. Yes, (laughs) yes, the way the law works. Mm -hmm. So I guess, well, why don't we just break it down for the audience, too, and have a refresher? Because we haven't talked too, too much about this since season one. So it would be great to have another refresher. But I was going to try to take a stab at it. But if you wanted to go ahead and 
explain it as eloquently as possible in digestible yeah. language. That would be wonderful. <laughs> I can give it a go for you, and you can ask the questions that you need to ask. Perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the, one of the some key things people need to know is it was in 2014 that the government did bring forward the new legislation, mm-hmm. and it was as a response to a case here in Canada called Bedford, uh, where the Supreme Court of Canada declared that three of our criminal law provisions uh, unconstitutionally infringe on sex workers' rights to to life, liberty, and security. Mm. Um, So what that essentially meant then is that these laws couldn't stand. So then the government had a choice of allowing decriminalization to happen or of introducing new legislation. And of course, because it was a conservative government, (laughs) they introduced new legislation that reflects a very particular ideological stance on the industry. And some people thought that they were going to bring in, you know, what I'm not sure if you've talked a lot about this one yet, but the uh, what's known as the Nordic model or the end demand model. Briefly um, spoke about that, but if you want to quickly yeah. define that, please do. Yeah, I mean, I think the most accurate way of actually defining that is it's called asymmetrical criminalization. Okay. And the reason I use that term is because it is still relying on the criminal law to regulate the sex industry, but oh. they ask for it to be asymmetrically applied so that certain mm-hmm. people have a harsher um, approach or brunt of the law than others do. Oh. Well, yeah, so mm-hmm. that's how like end demand would say, well, it's just the clients who should be criminalized for their roles, um, for buying, for people who manage the industry. Oh. They're the ones who who should be facing criminal criminal laws and the sex workers themselves should not. I mean, it's a deeply flawed uh, perspective because it assumes then that sex workers are not criminalized, which is wrong. If your client's criminalized, you're criminalized. Right. right? It doesn't do anything to deal with the the stigma or vulnerability uh, of sex workers, but it does mean that they aren't facing specific criminal laws themselves. I see. That's not what Canada did. No, no. No. So we have a bastardized version of asymmetrical criminalization. Oh, no. Um, which, yeah, that's my new title for it. And it's, that's what should be the new, the, new, the new title of the whole legislation, I think. The bastardization of asymmetrical criminalization. That's good. Um, Got to ring uh, to it. it. Yeah, it, uh, it essentially is, um, criminalized sex workers the same way that they were before by, by criminalizing communicating in public, mm-hmm. which was the same law that was deeply problematic for street-based workers that existed before the change in law. So they just copy and pasted that one. Oh, and then they reenacted a material benefits clause. So instead of living on the veils, mm-hmm. we now have what's called material benefits. Right. So if you receive any kind of material benefit from somebody else for their sex work, then you can be criminalized. Yeah, so for okay. example, if you even if you do things like you are the accountant mm-hmm. or a sex worker you're receiving a material benefit from somebody else's sex work oh so then you can that you can be um charged, charged. With, yeah yeah so that's oh, how broad that provision can be used what? Um, the one provision that they did not reenact is the brothels one so the idea of using a space on a regular basis for the purpose of prostitution right that one they allowed to lapse and because they've got material benefit right you don't mm. need both okay. uh, and then we now we have new criminal laws so not only do they reenact the old ones and yep. maintain the level of criminalization that used to exist that we, we added more uh, so that we currently have the most uh, criminalization that we've ever had in the Canadian territories um, up till this point in history. Wow! And so now we also criminalize advertising somebody else's sex work. Right. We criminalize the purchase mm-hmm. of sex work. So we already had trafficking provisions; those ones weren't challenged, and so those ones are still the same today. Oh my gosh! Wow. Okay. 
lot. There's a lot there. <laughs> yes, yes, there sure is. Oh gosh, where do you where do you even want to begin with that? <laughs> gosh. I want to begin with the title. Yeah, let's let's start with that. The title of the legislation is the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. Mm-hmm. So where are sex workers in that? No, when I was reading that too, I was like, I don't know how this would yeah. relate to me. Well, you're either going to define then all sex workers as exploited persons. Right. Or this law was only ever intended to protect those individuals who identify as exploited persons. And it was only intended to protect communities from sex workers. Ah, I see. Yeah. And depending on what you read and who, you know, who the authors, the people that are relied on by the federal government in creating this piece of legislation, it really does seem to be along the lines of protection of children, particularly Mm -hmm. from the existence of the sex industry. Uh, So creating very much an us versus them and seeing danger in sex work. Um, And then also protecting or trying to, I mean, the the idea of protection through criminalization is so insane in this this context. Right. Um, But protecting those individuals who identify as exploited. Wow. I didn't even think about even like going in to analyze even the title, like how problematic that can be. Oh, it's awful. I mean, I looked at um, Peter McKay was the justice minister at the time when he brought this legislation. So he was really the one who spearheaded this. And in his speech to introduce legislation, he talked about children Mm. uh, 19 times in 20 minutes. What? 19 times in 20 minutes. And then he used trafficking 12 times in that same 20 minutes. Oh, gosh. It was was so clear in terms of the goals of this legislation. It was never about increasing safety for sex workers. No. Or reducing vulnerability for sex workers. And one of the the senators, actually, when asked this in the committee hearings, you know, Don Platt, he actually said, Mm -hmm. this was never, we never intended to make things safer for sex workers. We want to get rid of the industry. Oh, my gosh. Which, Which really means we want to get rid of sex workers. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that for sure. And I think... And I say this stuff really uh, bluntly because I think we need to know what the purpose of the law is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to pretend that it was meant to protect sex workers is, is simply, it's, it's just imaginary. That's, yeah. that's pretending. The reality is it was never designed to make anything safer for people involved in the sex industry. And in fact, it's designed to try to get rid of people involved in the sex industry. Oh, gosh. Why is this still in effect to this day? Oh, yes. Why? (laughs) When this first came into play, of course, 2014, Mm -hmm. remember, conservative government was was in power. Yes. The Liberal Party, who was the main opposition at the time, uh, we just, you know, totally criticized it, condemned the government for this wrong-headed law. Oh, it's (laughs) awful. We should not just wrong way for it. The Liberal government has now been in power. It's now in its second term. Yes. We have not seen a change to the law. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, yes. It's so weird how uh, here they can criticize it, like to the loudly tops of voices yelling from everything else, oh and then gosh. they get in power, and it is not one of the pieces of legislation that they decide to overhaul. No. Um, that comes back again to politics. Yeah, because I haven't heard of any, any kind of efforts. No, I mean, everything's been kind of sidetracked from COVID stuff. (laughs) And that too. (laughs) Almost a year now, right? Yep. (laughs) Um, But uh, so so that's definitely had an impact. But there was actually supposed to be a five-year review that was supposed to have begun last year. And um, it has been stalled. That did not happen. 
Yeah. And I mean, part of that too, in terms of doing a five-year review, it's only ever going to be as good as who participates in it, but also Mm -hmm. in terms of is what you can actually do with it. So the terms of reference of that five-year review are going to be really, really important. For sure. Um, I think sex workers and and advocates and allies and researchers have been taking part in all these government uh, practices for years, but we don't ever see the the results. No. I mean, we've been telling governments for, for decades now about the damage that's done through these criminalization practices and they continue to use criminalization. So it doesn't, I don't think really matter. No. Um, you actually do a review. It's its like what just recently happening with the trafficking stuff. Right. Um, there was a review, there was a, a big national um, thing that went, the, the, the politicians went across Canada, spoke with a bunch of people. We spoke in camera with some people and you could go and speak um, publicly as well. Mm-hmm. But we told them, we told them everything about the reality of what's happening under these under these pieces of legislation and who is more likely to be trafficked and everything else. Mm-hmm. And they turned around and ignored it all. Of course. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, this is just really, really frustrating to hear. Because, again, like, yes. that was seven, seven years ago? Yeah, yes. 2014. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And still nothing has been done and hasn't been challenged or anything and nothing has changed. Like, it's... Like, I get, I get the state of the world is kind yeah. of not great right now. I get it. But, I mean, this is something that we've been fighting for so long. So long. So, so long. And, again, you know, here from on the West Coast with the missing and murdered uh, women and then, out yes. here, we had a provincial inquiry. We had the Picton trial. Um, we've we've had such, such huge high-profile yes. things that have happened here that have kind of made the sex industry stay in a political kind of a realm. Mm-hmm. But we still have exactly the same problems here even so i don't know how many more people have to die yeah like like we've it's it's we're in the thousands so i don't understand what it will take wow the only thing i can i can hope and and the reason that i do the work that i do is that the next generation and that's who I'm pinning all my hopes on. <laughs> the next generation is going to be better educated about this stuff. And I do everything I can to make sure that happens. Yes. But I think as researchers, we've dropped the ball a bit too. We need to make sure our research is disseminated to the public in mm-hmm. ways that people can actually understand. Mm-hmm. They're not going to read my 200-page dissertation. No. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I like might, husband... but... <laughs> yeah, my husband didn't read my 200-page dissertation, so... <laughs> I, I really doubt most people are going to be into that one um so so we need to find ways to Mm -hmm. to talk to people because i think i really don't believe that most people are so have such poor intentions that they want people to be harmed no i don't think so i think a lot of people don't understand and they don't they don't see the full effect no they only see one aspect of it and that's like a really really filtered like lens yes you know so um but you mentioned something about human trafficking, which I feel like we can definitely pivot the conversation towards that, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Yeah. yeah. So human trafficking, obviously, it's such a huge umbrella, a very, very big topic. And I guess my really butchered definition of human trafficking would be like the trade of humans for the purpose of A, forced, lab- forced labor, forced criminal activity, Sexual exploitation, even organs, uh, people smuggling. Am I missing any categories there? Or how would you define it? 
No, I mean, that, I think you've generally got the key aspects of it. There's, there's some big questions about whether or not you need to have um, migrate, like actual movement, mm. or are we just talking about exploitation of people? And that's been one of the debated topics um, internationally, as well as within each domestic um, country's uh, system of law. Because, like, for example, internationally, you actually do need to have some form of movement, movement. that's happened. Interesting. Um, and it was designed to be a part of the organized crime protocol. Right. Um, but domestically, we do not need to show any form of movement of people. Oh. So it's just the idea of exploiting another person in some capacity. Interesting. Um, okay. And that can even include just directing their um, their work, which is a very mm. loose and broad definition that yeah. can be harmful to people mm -hmm. uh, to be then identified as traffickers uh, for playing a role like, like for example managing um, right. I think one of the problems is that trafficking has kind of subsumed what we used to refer to as pimping okay uh, so nowadays nobody really gets charged with pimping right you only mm -hmm. get charged with trafficking right and I mean there's people who think well so what that's that's a good thing right people who are pimping others are bad okay well that that depends on if you have somebody who has consented to that relationship or not mm. right there are a lot of people who work as agents for others you know if you think about in the sporting realm if you think right. about in the acting or modeling there are people who work as agents they set up their gigs they take a big percentage um, they profit off the other person's labor right well, yeah so in the sex industry Never thought of it that way, but that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so the job itself of being an agent shouldn't be, and, and it's not actually considered a bad job in, in any other realm. It's just in the context of the sex industry that's considered evil in some way. Okay. Um, so I think one of the problems with the law is that we haven't necessarily named what we think is so bad. Right? Is it is it violence? In which case, we actually have so many different provisions in the criminal code that address violence. Mm -hmm. You know, um, is it is it coercion? Is it that somebody is getting forced to do something else? Again, that would be an assault type provision, um, right. or some kind of a of another like a form of exploitation if there is that. Um, but to make the assumption that anybody who is profiting off of somebody else's sex work is evil, or mm. you know, doing some doing so to exploit them. Uh, well, in that case, isn't every corporation exploiting its workers? Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So it's hard to define um, trafficking because mm -hmm. our legislation is not clear. And our legislation, no. the way it's, in, it's actually put in place, is very different from how it's applied to individuals. Right. And then who it gets applied to is very different as well. Oh. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Thinking, Oh yeah, I sure can. <laughs> looking at, at the enforcement of the law, it's 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 horrible. Some of the stuff I have to research, it, it just makes me so sad about where we are in the state of humanity. Mm. Um, but we see that there's a huge, much more negative impact on racialized people yes. when it comes to trafficking, in particular, and and certainly black men in particular, but also. Um, uh, men who have, and again, this sounds so ridiculous, but this is the way that we work in Canada, mm -hmm. um, names that sound Muslim. It's, it sounds so oh, ridiculous. Gosh. We don't we don't collect data on race here, right? No. Um, so. Oh no. <laughs> oh yeah, no. We're really we're just completely ignore, and we we pretend it doesn't exist as a problem, right? Oh, my like, God. oh we don't see race. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> um, but it is it is a almost a legal philosophy here. Wow. Um, to be, uh, what is it, uh, blind, to be uh, neutral, they call it, which mm -hmm. is not neutral. It's actually a very politically um, intentional role to play. Right. Um, 
but yeah, so we see that, and this is, I think, some some scholars in the U.S. also have, have said that the trafficking whole agenda is actually just a way of increasing black criminalization in particular, um, mm. using harsher sentences for the same kind of behavior that we were apparently concerned about before, but now we just have the ability to detain people um, and criminalize them for longer periods of time and oh, with more gosh. serious offenses, so they're also then dealing with any deportation if they have migration status issues as well oh my gosh oh yeah jeez and that's without proving that any violence has happened oh my gosh well i am so lord right now yeah and as i said it's it's kind of it's sad to even have to report on some of this stuff but these are people's realities and and Mm -hmm. to not know i think is also a form of intentional ignorance and really really harmful too um, I think when we look again at, at trafficking and, and like reporting and implementation, we should also look at how things are are, are reported and how we talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that the police, <laughs> Canada again, and I say this about Canada because obviously I focus all stuff on Canada, but yeah. any country has exactly the same problems. Right. Um, but the way that we used to report our trafficking was we would use this large category called you know trafficking and trafficking related offenses. What? Oh yeah, a oh trafficking offense can involve anything under the sun. What? And so we lumped it all into one category to say that the police were doing all this work prosecuting these cases, and so yay, Canada. Oh dear. But the reality is twofold on this. First of all, almost all those charges were trafficking related. They weren't trafficking. But oh. second of all, they were charges and not convictions. Mm, big difference. Big, 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 big difference. difference. Right? You reflected yeah. back on your old criminology degree. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, oh, gosh. Like 10 years but yeah, ago. I mean, we, like, that means that the evidence wasn't necessarily there for the trafficking charges. Hmm. So how can we then present ourselves as if these are trafficking convictions when we know very well that these were not convictions? Right. So when oh you do gosh. look back at the numbers, we know that, I mean, with the research that Dr. Haley Miller and I have been doing, we've seen 92 convictions over the course of almost 15 years. Oh, wow. 92. And that's crazy. Across the whole country. I feel that is such a small number. It is a very like, small number. It, I, I, I expected something much larger than that. Yeah, and, and I mean, the numbers is, I mean, it could be wrong by a few, right? Because we, the way that we do our databases, um, we have no real way of tracking cases in, in with ease. So you have to know the mm-hmm. name of the individual involved. You have to know, you know, various court file numbers. There's no public thing you can access. Right. So it, there's all sorts of problems with, with the numbers and statistics and how we collect them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it should be an indication when we say that we have 1,100 people who were charged over the same time, and only 92 of those were actually proceeding to a that's really surprising. Yes, yes, indeed it is. Really but surprising. But we really dig back through Canada's numbers. I mean, one of the first things we found out, which just floored me, and I was, I thought I couldn't be floored anymore. <laughs> uh, but uh, we, we looked back and we saw these convictions that were reported to the UN from 1997, 1998, you know, all this time. So I was like, well, that's really strange. Hmm. Canada didn't actually have a trafficking law until 2005. Oh, how did we have oh convictions gosh. in 1997, 1998? Right. What were those classified under then? Well, they were just convictions relating to the sex industry. But what the mm. government did is it asked the people working for the Department of Justice to look back through a bunch of files and say, which ones looked like 
looked like situations of <laughs> trafficking and that's what they reported oh gosh really? so our first like seven things that were in the UNODC were not actual cases where there was a trafficking conviction no. oh gosh oh so, man I think this stuff is important for people to know so that they question for sure. numbers yeah right so that anytime you see any number in any media report they stop and go hmm hang on I'm yeah. going to stop. I'm not going to believe that one until either I do more research myself or I look to see exactly what was the number, why it was there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean trafficking never happens. Like uh, people come no. and say, well, you don't you realize you're, you're just denying trafficking. No, I'm no. not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm, most of my work is on victimization. I've been an anti-violence worker as well as somebody who's done research in this area for over 20 years. Yes. Um, but I'm also somebody who believes in accurate production of knowledge for and sure. dissemination of that knowledge. The, the amount of, of, of uh, wrong information about trafficking is so massive out there. And it's partly because it is an industrial complex of its own. Mm. Okay. People make money. People's jobs yes. are about campaigning around human trafficking. You know, it's it's a huge money maker for churches, for all these different organizations who are doing anti-trafficking work. Yeah. For governments, for police, they get more funding if they can show that they're doing work in human trafficking. Right. So it is such money-driven um, things. That it's it's remarkable. Again, it's not actually about the individuals who no. are apparently supposed to be that we're supposed to be protecting is the jobs yeah that's so sad and like ugh, frustrating too because then this just reminds me of FOSS SESTA in the states because yeah. we have a lot of listeners that are american and this would definitely pertain to everyone listening there but again like sex workers get jumbled up with that whole legislation that was put in yeah. in aim is to protect children right supposedly, <laughs> supposedly but <laughs> again yeah. it, it just causes sex workers to go down this deep dark hole that isn't regulated isn't protected you know take more risks that way yeah. and yeah. it's just really disappointing to hear and again that was put in place by <laughs> the conservative government trump <laughs> so <laughs> well the origins of that they'll go back to bush Oh, current, okay. oh, yeah, wow. yeah, and, and in particular, some of his work um, also, you know, deeply in bed, which is so ironic to see people like George Bush in bed with the radical feminist group. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> when did you ever think that would happen? Well, no. ta-da, found it. Um, and I, and I mean, maybe they should take a look at you know who your bedfellows are and see whether or not that's the right path you want to be on. Right. Um, but the, the, I mean, this stuff was was rooted in in the whole his legislation that started when they said that no organization could also be um, a sex workers rights organization. You had to be anti trafficking to receive funding. Wow. Yeah. Really. So, oh yeah. So that started oh, at that point. And this is this is one of the pieces that that builds on that. Um, Canada has the same basic stuff. Right. Our yeah. advertising legislation is essentially the same as Fosto Sesta. Right. Yeah. So lots of similarities there. Yeah. But again, is anything happening in order to eliminate Fosta Sesta? Uh, there have been some attempts. They haven't been successful yet no. that I know of in the U.S. Um, I mean, there's a lot of 
from what I know of from from the the activist side of the U.S., you've got some brilliant scholars and some incredible individuals who are leading fights um, who who could really use the support, I think, of of all sorts of folks behind them, mm-hmm. partly to show government just how deep the support is for decriminalization. I think it's really important that people realize how many people actually agree with that, right. um, but also so that people um, can support them in whether it's financial ways or political ways. Um, it is risky for politicians to come out in support of decrim because mm-hmm. you will automatically um, exclude then a bunch of people who will never vote for you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which and, is really tricky. That's, that's a reality whether we're talking about Canada or the US. Uh, yeah, like I just, it's just really sad when you when you deduce it that way, but it's also real. <laughs> it's so real. You know? Yeah, and and that's where issues of privilege really come into play too. Yeah, um, because we know that it isn't the most privileged among us who are going to face the brunt of the criminal law. Right. It's people who don't have access to lawyers or, or who don't have even access to legal aid right. or the people who our society has always been more interested in criminalizing who are, you mm-hmm. know, lower in the socioeconomic uh, range. You know, these are the individuals who are going to face the brunt of criminal law. Right. And it, this kind of legislation just increases that divide substantially. Right. between the haves and the have-nots so it's it's very very elitist and i mean look at look at your cases in the u.s you've yeah. got your epstein right mm-hmm. epstein i mean you can pretty much i can probably name off like 10 really important <laughs> wealthy white men um who <laughs> recently you know had some some pretty serious accusations against them for sure um, that we are not calling them well we call Jeff, jeffrey epstein a trafficker but for the most part he was known to do what he did for so many years and people did not use the name trafficking against him until recently right and then a lot of people just turned a blind eye like a lot of people knew what was going on but didn't want to say anything yeah so that's i think really important to keep in mind too is how who we're really talking about whose behavior we really want to regulate Mm -hmm. you know it's it's not the wealthy no right and yet they're the ones who are often you know most heavily involved in some of this yeah i was listening to um did you hear about the peter nygaard case yes in canada and i'm like oh my gosh i really hate to hear this i mean obviously this also happens in canada but it's just i want to say almost the equivalent of jeffrey epstein I know, yeah, yeah. Oh, and again, like the the reports, and this is where you know I, I link this sometimes to the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. uh, and how many people come out about you know the fact that there's been sexual harassment or sexual assault, you know, and people start texting Me Too. Honestly, the only thing I wanted to text was who hasn't. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, just, yeah. Like I don't think you could be, you know, certainly you couldn't be in your forties or up and not have experienced something in your working life. Yeah. You know, and that's just the reality of just how endemic some of this is. So the irony of all this is that there's so much sexual assault and sexual harassment that's happened. But here you have sex workers who not only are, you know, out there advocating in terms of Me Too movements, they're leading so many of these movements, but they're actually teaching about consent themselves. Right. And sex workers, you know, we, we, we tend to think about... Uh, there's a difference between criminal law in Canada and criminal law in a lot of the U.S. states mm-hmm. where consent is treated um, in different ways. So in Canada, okay. we're not looking for a no. You mm-hmm. have to show that there was a yes. 
Mm. Right. That's what consent means. Whereas for a lot of states in the U.S., you have to show that somebody said no. Said no. Yeah. Yeah. So it's positive affirmation versus negative. Interesting. Um, I didn't even know that part. Yeah. Wow. But that is our law in Canada. You have to actually say yes. You have to go get your your yes. You have to get a yes, a yes, yes. And hopefully a lot more yeses, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, when it comes down to a part of consent is also then respecting when somebody says yes. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. sex workers are saying yes and outlining the terms in which they are willing to have sex, then our responsibility is to respect that yes. Yes. 100%. It's a lot of pushback. They're not okay with us saying yes. Yeah. That, and I think it comes down, honestly, to that moral issue, yes. which has been here for so long. Yeah. Right? Um, we can actually trace it in, in, the, in the Canadian context, uh, particularly under colonialism, as, mm-hmm. as it's impacted uh, Canada here. Um, you can see the shift from when we went to treating the sex industry as a necessary evil to treating it as a social evil. Oh, Right. So it used to be the case in early colonial days that, you know, the government would kind of tolerate there being some sex work Mm -hmm. because they figured, oh, well, you know, men will be men. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was this idea that, you know, if men didn't have an outlet for their poor exploding penises, what would they do? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Would they turn to each other? <gasps> so, you know, they got their their, their petticoats in, in a twist and all that and uh, decided that they, they need to have an outlet. And so sex work was generally more tolerated. Interesting. But then as... Uh, families and particularly white women also we can we can blame some of this in the colonial <laughs> Canadian context uh, yes. on white women is is when you have white women arriving is when you start to see the policies changing to move mm. sex work out of the city and that now these men who were allowed to use sex workers before well now they need to get married mm. um, they need to be married to the proper women right, right? yeah the, the proper religious women who would keep them on the right moral track and that's actually how we started dissolving what were called the uh, mariage du pays, um, okay. which were the the marriages that that often took place between like original like fur trader colonial first uh, contact groups and indigenous folks, right. because that was happening for hundreds of years, right? Yeah. And so those marriages were often then dissolved, because the church had a really important you know imperative mm-hmm. to try to make sure that the colonial undertaking was done through families. Right. And so we start that it just just becomes a part of the whole system. So they dissolve the marriages between indigenous women and and white men, and tell the white men, no, you need to you need to marry the white woman. Right. Oh my gosh. And that's a yeah. whole other topic too. Which yeah. Uh, sorry. No, 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 no. This is super fascinating. And I just I just yeah. finished a course on Indigenous Canada, and this is just I'm just remembering everything from that course <laughs> recently. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Again, I think I think we have to remember just how intentional some of our policies have been about mm-hmm. you know the the reality of trying to literally commit gen- genocide. Yeah, and I know that a lot of Canadians you know feel nervous about using that term, but I think it's really the only accurate term to describe what uh, Canada has done. Yeah, and that's um, like if you wanted to hear more on Indigenous peoples in Canada, then definitely and Indigenous sex workers even. Then you guys want to listen to the um, Indigenous episode with Lynx Chase, which is a few episodes back. So go yes. go backwards, people. Yes. 
That's right. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I, I feel like I've been, I feel surprised by a lot of the findings that you shared today. And it also sounds like you're, you're continuously surprised. Oh <laughs> I, I think you're right. And I think that's one of the reasons why I keep, I stay in the subject area and I keep on doing the work that I do. Yeah. Um, it's not that I believe I'm necessarily going to be like the change maker. It's, it's that first of all, I just, this is, this just can't be how we continue. Yeah. Um, when you hold this knowledge, I feel that you also hold a responsibility to do something with it. Yes. And, and so I couldn't just, just take the knowledge and sit on it. It's, it's just, that's not in me. No. Um, but I also feel that there are so many other people who, if they knew all this, then they too would want to act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hopefully the students that you're teaching in your class will be the next wave of change makers. That's, that's what I hope. That's, that's what the I hope. do. I do. Yeah. Right? And even, even something as simple as this podcast too, because I had no intentions. Like I didn't know how far this was going to go. I am surprised yeah. I'm on season two. But people are like, keep recording during COVID. I'm like, sure. And um, I just feel like, there are so many sh- stories to, to, to tell and to share and experiences that we need to hear. And I feel like education is just so, so powerful, you know? I would totally agree. <laughs> Given yeah. my line of work, I guess I kind of have to uh, <laughs> drop that Kool-Aid, right? Um, uh, yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's it's the thing about the layers and the diversity. I mean, I think a podcast like this, you can, there are so many different different ways of looking and thinking, but also different ways of working mm-hmm. and different ways of experiencing um, and different perspectives within that. It, it, that's probably been one of the biggest takeaways for me is that it's so hard to generalize. It is. I have people so all the time who want me just to make things simple and say it in like three sentences. And I'm like, uh, I'm going to need a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. 13 weeks and three hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> I might get close by that. Uh, <laughs> But the rea- it's just, it is, it is, and it's something that I think a lot of people in advocacy have really struggled with too, mm-hmm. is getting the messages out is so difficult because it's not something you can say in a one-liner. No. Whereas end demand, well, there you go. It's two words. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, it's, and it's as simple <laughs> as that for, for a lot of people. And so it's really hard in terms of messaging to make it concise and digestible while actually accurately representing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another good good part of it as well. Because, again, like, and that's why I have so many episodes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> because it's hard to jumble up into one episode and even, like, even I <laughs> – the whole like idea for the show would be like, okay, hour long episode, then we'll talk about a couple things, and then you just keep digging and digging and just realize how vast yes. this industry is. <laughs> and no two episodes are the same. I have not repeated any topics yet. So. No, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's the, one of the beautiful things about all of this too. And I think that's actually one of the reasons so many sex workers do find their work to be so fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah so many workers who say things like every day is different and I'm yeah. still experiencing new things you know and they're in their 40s and 50s and I've been doing it for 20 years <laughs> you know? and, and so this is this is it's the kind of work I think that for people who are looking for that diversity of clientele and of experience I think it can really fulfill that for some some people absolutely for sure um there are just a few questions that came in sure 
So uh, we'll try to see if we can answer it to the best of your ability. If not, we can skip up to you, but let's see. Let's just go for it. Yep. Um, in your findings, what was the most common way that victims were trafficked? If you can answer that. Um, well, most common is tough for me because <laughs> like my numbers or. Yeah, I mean, this like, person didn't specify, but it's really up to you yeah. how you. Um, one of the biggest cases in the Canadian history is to do with labor trafficking. Labor um, trafficking. And, yeah, and actually that's what we see across the board, even internationally, oh. is labor trafficking actually is far more significant than sex industry trafficking, even though oh. all these anti-trafficking campaigns will tell you differently. Yes. Um, it's simply, that's, that's just not true. It, labor trafficking is much more extensive, and particularly labor exploitation. Right? Okay. When you start thinking about how many people are in a country and who are being exploited, um, and you have precarious status in that country. The numbers are massive. Right, like the numbers right. are massive. But we don't actually want to take action in that capacity because our economies depend on some people being exploited. Ah, there we go again. Another political agenda. Slash <laughs> it always comes back that. to it. It comes back to money or politics. <laughs> yeah. That, again, that's a really interesting theme that you've just really put out there. Now I just can't unsee it. I am sorry, but it's the truth. I mean, that's what we said to the federal government, too, in their trafficking um, consultation piece. We said, no, what the real issue here is, is whether or not the government is willing to go after the corporations and even the smaller businesses who are exploiting people in the work environment. And no, they're not. Mm, Interesting. And also really sad to hear as well. Um, I I mean, mean, it's very deliberate. We've we've literally carved out this kind of work from our labor and employment standards legislation. Mm -hmm. Right. So even if you're talking about it used to be the case for um, nannies, right, that they literally didn't like the working legislation didn't apply. We said they were an exception to same thing with people who pick berries and do various kinds of of work. they, They cannot get the same work rights as Canadians get right. um, because of course they are seasonal workers and they don't, the law that doesn't literally doesn't even apply to them. doesn't apply to them. Oh gosh. I didn't I never thought about that. Yeah. But... Probably not the answer that your questioner was asking for. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's a great answer. Again, I'm learning something new. So yeah. if I'm learning something new, then someone else will be <laughs> learning yeah. something new as well. Um, can you answer this one? Do you happen to know the province with the highest rate of human trafficking? Well, that depends on, on the type. Yes, on I the do. Type, right? It's actually, it's more about the highest rate of police action. Oh. It's not necessarily the highest rate of human trafficking itself. Okay. So the province that has the highest resources to prosecute and to investigate and the province that actually does the most investigations because they do a lot of sting operations mm-hmm. is Ontario. Oh, okay. I had a feeling. I, I was like, probably going to be Ontario. Yeah, like BC has on very few. Okay. BC really doesn't do a whole lot. No. Um, Quebec does some, Manitoba does some, Alberta went a little nuts a couple of years ago. Um, but Alberta's actually changed a lot of their focus to labor. Oh, interesting. I had no idea about this kind of stuff. Yeah, it, well, and again, just because police are looking for it doesn't mean that it's actually happening differently across the country. Right. It could be happening at very similar um, levels. It's just mm-hmm. that the police actual resources to go out and investigate and the political will to mm-hmm. go out and investigate are different. Right. Again, going back to that overarching theme. Yeah. <laughs> the other part that's important, too, is the fact that here in BC, we have fractured policing, right? So we have RCMP mm-hmm. that have contracts over some areas, and then we have municipal policing in other yes. areas. So there will be different enforcement patterns in each of those areas, whereas Ontario is one provincial is one. police unit. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. 
Um, I know you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but what groups are the most vulnerable when it comes to human trafficking? Um, definitely youth. Uh, yeah. youth, youth are, are significantly uh, more vulnerable, but that's, that's partly inherent to youth itself. Yeah. And by youth, I mean teenagers. Um, but certainly, you know, you could have youth up to the age of 25, mm-hmm. like some provincial numbers include. Um, but again, it depends on, on what kind of tra- human trafficking we're talking about. I'm assuming right. everybody assumes that all human trafficking is sex related. Right. Um, and so there, yes, youth is a big one. But in terms of labor trafficking, it isn't youth actually it there isn't a specific age it's just whoever you know is in desperate enough circumstances who they can be exploited yeah right Um, so that can sometimes be quite a bit older so your group there may be 30s to 40s of people who have no other choices right um yeah so it really it depends on the type of trafficking that we're talking about yeah can you again this is random and this is just me being selfish but going back into labor trafficking and labor exploitation Uh is that i mean and talking specifically here in bc and how that would go with the i guess like the employment standards act Uh what would that be defined as i mean it's such a broad i mean labor in general is just such a broad yeah thing right so what does it take to get to level of exploitation yeah yeah, it's a good question, and, and we see quite variant cases. Um, I mean, if you're talking about the basic human rights legislation, nobody is supposed to feel any kind of harassment, mm-hmm. right, in the context of their work. But I know that for a lot of women who do work in different labor environments who are dealing with precarious status or who are uh, migrants, um, mm-hmm. harassment happens on a pretty regular basis. There have been a few really big cases, actually, where they've been able to sue other oh. employers, and actually they've been successful under human rights legislation. So that's been one positive. But that's because human rights legislation doesn't um, exclude people on the basis of their status okay whereas employment legislation does <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's it's a weird this is the way again things about the laws you have to know how the law is limited in order yeah. to know how it applies um, but when we're talking about labor exploitation the big cases that we've seen have been really awful living and working conditions Mm-hmm. Uh, where people are working far longer uh, than they are, are legislated to be normally, uh, yeah. that they are receiving a pay that is significantly less than market value, where they don't, oftentimes the employer has their documents, so they withhold documents, yeah. so the person literally can't leave, or they have restrictions on things like movement, or they charge them for their living conditions, or their housing, right. and then take it out of their wages. And then they have systems of fines, oh so that the individual essentially ends up working for almost nothing, because because they then have to pay for all their fines, including travel fees. Oh, um, gosh. So in those circumstances, I mean, there's no other way to describe that, but as exploitation yeah. and even as slavery. Yeah, right? modern day slavery, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And these are conditions that, you know, unfortunately, you also often have language barriers and mm-hmm. a lack of knowledge about your rights. Yeah. Um, so a lot of migrant rights groups try really hard to do outreach and to try to um, inform people, but it's a very difficult process. Yeah. There's a lot of barriers to cross in that. And actually, this reminds me of back in my day my at SFU when I actually did a paper on temporary foreign workers. Yeah. Specifically, I'm Filipino, so I yeah. there's a lot of Filipino um, migrant workers that are around the world, not just even yeah. Canada, but like the Middle East, like Asia, you know, working as like living nannies and stuff. And a lot of them oh, yeah. are just being, as you said, they're they're acting as slaves. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, and even if you think about like the nanny program, which I think is really one of the programs that's been quite um, public about the changes that it's had to make. Uh, but the, if you really think about that program, you essentially have somebody who's earning a very small amount when you deduct their housing. Mm-hmm. Right, because you can charge them for room and board out of the pay that they're supposed to make, and then you often have people who are working much more hours than they're supposed to be working, and again, like they can't necessarily go anywhere. No, but we need a system like that because it's actually cheaper for people who have maybe two kids mm. because the childcare is so expensive it's here. Very expensive. So it's the nanny system, something that we often rely on for middle class families because both parents do need to work. So you need someone to care for the children, but you need to do it in a way that doesn't cost very much. Right. Right. So rather than either pay people more or provide better childcare opportunities, we use exploitation. <sighs> But we defend it by saying, well, these individuals probably are earning more than they would have back home. Oh. Take advantage of the fact that, and and this is partly colonialism again. Yeah. The winners around the world. uh, It's, it's, yeah. These are are big issues. (laughs) Lots of big issues. And there's so much, there's so much to do. You know? There is so much to do, I know, but I think it's <laughs> important that these conversations move into these other forms of labor and, you know, everything when we're just, because we're not just, we're focused so extensively on the sex industry with all this stuff and we've yeah. ignored all these other forms of exploitation. And so we've totally. normalized those forms of exploitation Absolutely. while at the same time constructing sex as something that is inherently exploitative. Yeah, like it's, it's really... It's really sad to, to, to see and to hear that this is still happening and it's happening in Canada. Like it just breaks my heart because then obviously like when you, when you think of human trafficking in general, you, you, would mo- you might want to think of a poster with a child on it. You might be yeah. going on vacation somewhere in Southeast Asia and that's kind of just like the stereotype, the vision that people think right away but it's so much more than that it goes deeper than that and as we said earlier there's so many different buckets that can go into it's just so broad oh yeah absolutely you know and and even if we do want to bring it into the the subject closer to you know um, sex and relationships and stuff okay so again where do we draw the line and and at what point are we willing as a state or society to question other people's choices Mm -hmm. I mean I'm sure you can think of friends of yours who have been with a boyfriend or girlfriend that you think is really bad for them Mm-hmm. definitely right and you know people who are in relationships you're like man that's not a good relationship and you know yeah. you, you even know somebody who is being victimized by their partner what oh, do yeah. we do what yeah. what is the state role here should we actively then remove one person should we tell people that we don't think they should do that because we think it's bad for them hmm. right and yeah the same good question. Thing then can apply for the sex industry Right. That's true. It goes both ways, too, because the thing is, like, do you intervene? Yes. Should you intervene? How yeah. does it benefit them? Yes. You know? in, in BC, Crown Council policy used to be that if, and it was always very gendered, very gender binary, woman gets victimized by male aggressor. Right. Um, but it was, the policy was that um, if you did have a case, then you would prosecute whether or not the woman wanted the case to go forward. Mm-hmm. And that you would even charge her with perjury or threaten oh. to take her kids 
for if she's in an unsafe environment to try to force things along because the idea was that the state you know knows that this is a bad situation so we're going to try to end it oh my gosh so what do you end up with here right are criminalized women and families fractured yeah and now then you end up with people who don't want to come forward yeah who don't don't call police when there is violence that happened so crown council ended up revoking that policy and amending it um, to a much more trauma-informed um, perspective to bring to the table. Wow. But it's it's a hard one. It's a really tough one because your first instinct, I think, is to say, well, it's bad, right? We should prosecute mm-hmm. this person. Like, obviously, if you're not willing to testify against somebody who's been violent to you, it's because you're fearful still of that person. Right. Right. So we as the state then should take that role and just go ahead and ram forward. But when we start thinking about the damage that's done through that method, we have to really ask yourself if it is actually worth it. And what is the end goal here? Right. 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 Is is the end goal that somebody is uh, living in a peaceful environment? Um, Like, like, like we never ask ourselves that question of what is our end goal? Right. Oh gosh. There's so many things I need to think about. (laughs) <laughs> after we stop recording yes oh yes. my gosh I feel like I'm taking your class right now like this is great <laughs> this is awesome <laughs> I know I know sorry yeah I, I can as I said I can talk about any one of the stuff for hours <laughs> oh no it's excellent and I am really hoping that the audience is going to enjoy this and ha- is learning as much as I am right now but um that's it for questions today but I would love I mean, obviously, people can take your class as a few, but <laughs> do you have any particular resources or websites where you can direct people to learn more mm-hmm. about topics that we've discussed today? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I mean, my stuff is out there. People can find it if they want to. But I think it's more <laughs> important that people look to the agencies and the organizations that are sex worker led mm-hmm. and that are the ones who are producing some really excellent critiques of our systems. So mm-hmm. particularly in the Canadian context, um, go and, and support organizations like Swan Vancouver Society yes. or Butterfly out of Toronto, okay. um, Maggie's and Stella, yes. Pace, um, Peers, Wish, uh, all of these organizations that exist that provide services in the Canadian context anyway um, for sex workers and that are really doing this in a way that it keeps sex workers in control yes. of the organizations. It's not people outside yeah. telling people what they need. It's it's recognizing sex workers are fully capable of identifying and fighting for their own needs. They need the rest of us to get out of their way. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I'm so familiar with like a, a number of organizations organizations that you mentioned but i'll definitely be sure to plug all the links in the show notes so you guys can go ahead and click on that and learn (laughs) yes yeah exactly but i mean Tamara, it was so nice to have you on the show thank you so so much for chatting with me i I really am envious i never got to take your class back in my (laughs) undergrad days No, this was, it's, it's really, it's a privilege for me to, to just be able to feel like I'm starting, I'm trying to disseminate all of the stuff that I've been learning and holding on to. And I feel like I'm really privileged in knowing that stuff. Mm. And I really do firmly believe that the more other people learn this 
we'll have more allies. Absolutely. So thank you for the opportunity. Any time. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's so, so cool to have you on. And again, to support SFU as well, <laughs> which I'm like yes. super proud about. But um, it's Strip by Sia on Instagram or my personal Sia stuff. And it's new episodes every single Sunday. So don't forget to like, rate, share, review maybe, and maybe subscribe. That would be great. And we'll catch everyone in for another episode next week. Thanks, Tamara. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Strip by Sia. Hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia. Artwork by Maria Bellandorama. Music by Ted D. And photography by Ian Dabern.